Welcome to Room to Play, the premier podcast dedicated to pediatric rheumatology. The Room to Play podcast is sponsored by Pfizer and is for educational and entertainment purposes alone and should not be used to diagnose or treat any specific patients. The thoughts and opinions shared in the show are those of the hosts. Please say hello to your hosts, Dr. Ginger Janow and Dr. Mariah Taylor. Welcome, everybody, to the Room to Play podcast. I'm Mariah Taylor, a pediatric rheumatologist at Baylor College of Medicine. Hey there. My name is Ginger Jano. I'm a pediatric rheumatologist at Hackensack University Medical Center in Hackensack, New Jersey. Hi, my name is Tressa, and I'm a pediatric rheumatology fellow at Hackensack with Dr. Jano. Fantastic. All right, Dr. Ambukin, without further ado, let us hear about our patient for today. Today we have... The case of MR. He is a 10-month-old male who is presenting with refusal to bear weight on his right foot for the last three weeks. Um, historian is mom and she reports that there is no history of trauma and she describes that his right leg quote-unquote does not go all the way straight. So MR he's still crawling but he limps whenever he tries to walk. All right so Dr. Jano. Given this limited amount of information that we have so far on the patient, what differential diagnoses do you think you would consider if you saw this patient in clinic? First of all, I'm definitely a little concerned because 10 months is young, right? So like in pediatric rheumatology clinic, we don't see tons and tons of patients who are 10 months old. So already I'm sort of raising an eyebrow and thinking to myself, well, this is very different than if a three-year-old walked in or an eight-year-old or an older teen. And I'm going to also be more worried about any kind of emergency situations because a 10 month old isn't going to be able to give me as good a history or give me as many symptoms or anything like that. And anytime somebody says refusal to bear weight, um, I take that a lot more seriously um, because automatically as a rheumatologist, um, my brain here is refusal to bear weight. And to me, that is a red flag when you're talking about joint issues for septic joints. Um, so even though that may have nothing to do with that, just that that little catchphrase, refusal to bear weight, makes me nervous. 10 months makes me nervous. I'm relieved that there's no trauma because in this age group, I'd definitely be worried about child abuse um, or anything of that nature. Um, and I like that the parents are giving me this description of the leg not going all the way straight because I feel like that's um, a helpful bit of information that parents don't necessarily always give you so so um, outwardly. Um, and also, the other thing I wanted to mention is I want to clarify with these parents and maybe with Dr. Ambukim, 10-month-old already walking? Really? That's good. I mean, I know my kid didn't walk till 14 months. Um, so, um, I, I want to mention that and check how, how he was doing with walking. And also just to bring up for, you know, a general pediatric, like red flag is anytime anybody loses a developmental milestone that is an emergency. Okay. Any developmental milestone that they go backwards, no, no good. Um, so in terms of my differential, um, which I believe was the actual question you asked me. <laughs> um, I am thinking about any kind of missed trauma, first of all. Um, JIA is juvenile arthritis is not the first thing that's going to come to my head. Um, it's going to be like trauma nine times out of 10. I'm thinking of 
any kind of infection, osteomyelitis, septic joint, et cetera. Um, and I'm thinking of any kind of, you know, post-infectious arthritis type process. And also I will mention that three weeks is sort of a funny time period, right? It's not quite acute, but it's not quite chronic. So I'm curious to hear more about that as we move along. Right. So it sounds like the differential is still pretty wide open. Um, and you make a good point about this patient being a, a really early walker. So knowing your your developmental milestones in the pediatric population can really help you figure out so what sort of pathophysiology um, you may actually be looking at. And so Dr. Ambukin, tell us more. Sure. So let me give you a little bit more history. So mom says that his limp doesn't seem to change throughout the course of the day. And over the past three weeks, there's really been no change in his status. He's not had any fevers. No other swollen joints have been noted. He seems to play the same amount as before. And he seemingly has no pain during diaper changes. Otherwise, he is continuing to eat and drink well. He seems to be growing well. No other concerns. And again, he's still crawling. Fantastic. Okay, so Dr. Janow, knowing all of this information, um, how are you thinking about this patient now? Does this narrow your differential? Um, what, are you, what are your thoughts? Well, I'm chilling out a little bit over here because I feel like <laughs> the eating and drinking well, growing well, no other complaints. Like I'm looking at this kid and I'm not seeing a terribly ill kid. So that, that makes me happy. Um, and he's still playing and doing all those things that, that, you know, babies do. I always joke that they only have a few jobs, you know, pee, poop, eat, play, sleep. Okay. So those are the things you want to ask about. Um, so, so limp does not change throughout the day. That's a rheumatologist way of trying to tell you that they don't have morning stiffness. So what does that mean? Um, that means that when this baby wakes up, um, it doesn't seem like there's what's called a gelling phenomenon. So in arthritis, um, which is our bread and butter, you develop, um, I like to refer to this as um, baking jello. So if you've ever made jello, you know that you start with a solid, I mean a liquid. Um, I have made jello, I swear. <laughs> um, and you mix the liquid, you put it in the fridge overnight, and in the morning you wake up and you have a solid. And when you have inflammatory goo, um, which is really a mishmash of inflammatory cells in an arthritis situation, it's basically when you go to sleep, it's like putting the jello in the fridge at night. And it basically sort of solidifies. And then the next day, if you've ever played with your jello, and I'm not saying I ever have, but just in case one had played with jello, um, if you mix it up enough, it gets back into a sort of a more liquidy form. And that's what um, arthritis goo or inflammatory goo does also. So when we say lymph does not change throughout the day, um, that's saying without really saying that it doesn't seem like there's morning stiffness. Um, and so no fevers is somewhat reassuring in terms of a septic joint, but I'm not all the way reassured. And there are definitely some bugs that can give you a more indolent course. Um, and I still don't feel like I have a ton of information as to whether this could be abuse. And diaper changes are a big thing in this age group, especially in the lower extremities, because there's a lot of hip manipulation. Um, so if there's anything going on in the hip, that can be um, a hint. Um, there's some knee and some ankle. If you think about it, I don't know how many of you have changed diapers, but a lot of the time you like pick 
them up sort of by their feet. Um, not all the way up. I, I don't know what you're picturing over here, but <laughs> to get their butts up so you can like slide things in and out. So that's sort of where my head's at. Okay. So, you know, say that a general pediatrician is seeing this patient in clinic first because, you know, that's the, the typical order of events. Um, would you hope that a, a generalist or a primary care physician would do any sort of particular workup at this stage, um, you know, perhaps before they were sent to a rheumatologist? So at this point, I mean, the only things, the big emergencies you want to work, work out when you have a kid that's lost a developmental milestone and is not bearing weight. You want to make sure it's not septic, you want to make sure it's not trauma, and you want to make sure um, that it's not oncologic, because that's the other thing that sometimes can cause unilateral extremity pain, okay? And so in this particular case without the kid, you know, with a child, baby of this age who's not walking, um, it would probably be wise to, at a minimum, um, get some basic labs for a pediatrician in the general, you know, population. Um, I would think in this kid, you, I would probably want to send them to the emergency room to rule out a septic joint at this juncture. And that would require, you know, CDC, ESR, CRP. Um, I would probably do a chemistry, um, plus or minus, depending on how the kid looks and what everything looks like. Um, a uric acid and an LDH just to help rule out other malignancy type pictures. Just to have that cooking. Fantastic. Okay. So you would, would phone a friend um, and ask for more stuff to be done sort of in the short term. Um, I totally agree. Three weeks is a, a little bit long for a septic joint, right? Um, and I don't, we haven't heard of a history of fever yet. I don't know if that's coming. Um, but agreed, there are some indolent infections um, that I would definitely be worried about at this stage of the game. All right, so Dr. Ambukin, do you want to tell us more about this patient? Yes. So as you had mentioned, um, he was seen by his primary doctor because of the refusal to bear weight and basic labs, x-rays of the right thigh and knee were done. And the x-rays were read as a possible fracture of the distal femur. When the routine labs were done, um, white count was within normal limits at 10.9. There was some anemia noted with an H and H of 10.5 over 32.9. Platelets were within normal limits. MCV was 74. ESR was within normal limits at two. And Lyme antibodies had also been drawn and were negative. Because of the x-ray being read as a possible fracture of the distal femur, the PMDA actually referred to ortho. When ortho reviewed the imaging, they did not think that a fracture was present, but they did note a right knee effusion during examination, and patient was thus referred to rheumatology. Dun, dun, dun. Fantastic. <laughs> yes. So my question for you, Dr. Um, Dr. Janow, Lyme disease does not really happen in Texas, per se, unless you've traveled. So what part of the country do we need to, to really think about Lyme arthritis or Lyme infections? And what does that even look like as the Texan who um, has not really ever seen Lyme disease? Mm, I can definitely tell you about Lyme disease. So Lyme disease, um, invented is the wrong word, was discovered and described um, in Lyme, Connecticut. There is actually a town you will drive through when you drive through Connecticut. Um, and so it is largely seen in the Northeast um, portion of the United States. 
And, um, you know, it's funny because I think when we're residents, we're taught very frequently that Lyme um, is something that you have to like go hiking in the woods for or whatever. But I, I trained in the Bronx and at Montefiore and we saw plenty of Lyme arthritis and it didn't necessarily mean that the kids were escaping to, you know, like Westchester suburban woods. It's just that you can go to the park and, you know, like it, it definitely was not, did not rule it out just because you were from the city um, and not a uh, wooded area. So Lyme arthritis is a late manifestation of Lyme. So what does that mean? Um, it is something that's seen, you know, several weeks after the initial infection, if not months. Um, and so what does that tell us? That tells us that in terms of looking at it, um, are you going to have IgG or IgM if it's a later manifestation? IgG. So I think this can sometimes throw off um, pediatricians um, in the general population because I think sometimes when you see something that looks acute to you, so the, the frequent presentation of this is a super swollen knee, a very boggy knee, um, a knee that classically is more swollen than you would expect for, you know, the amount of pain. Um, and it's just like, they're juicy. They're like very juicy. Um, and um, so when you see this, I think some, you know, people who aren't as familiar might look at it and then see the labs and be like, oh, the Lyme IgM is negative. This can't be Lyme but it's actually a late immune reaction to the Lyme. So what you expect to see is the IgG, not so much the IgM. Um, it's typically um, presents with one joint, although it can present with a couple of joints. Um, and um, the knee is the most frequently affected joint. And they often will have an elevated ESR and or CRP. And oh, one other thing, everybody's like, but I didn't see a tick. I didn't see a bug bite. I didn't see the bullseye rash. I would say like 99 times out of 100, when I see kids that have Lyme arthritis, there was no known history of the bug bite. So don't don't sweat that if, if that, that's not known. Okay. Good to know. So it sounds to me like the key part of the history is making sure that they had the correct exposure. So even if they are a native Texan, did they visit Connecticut? Have they been to the Northeast? Um, and also in the same vein, making sure that you do get a good travel history because um, there are different regional infections that can cause, cause different types of arthritis, um, both infectious and post-infectious. So I guess my final question before we continue um, is the referral to rheumatology. Too soon or appropriate? What are, what are your thoughts on that? Because we're probably at like the three or four week mark still. I think I think it's absolutely appropriate, especially. I mean, I think that would be true in most age groups, and um, but certainly in a ten month old who's not walking and has an effusion and trauma has been rolled out, doesn't look like infection and doesn't look like malignancy. Obviously, nothing's like a hundred percent, but um, I think all things considered, this is a kid that I would want the pediatrician or the orthopedist to potentially even call me um, and just give me a heads up on this one. Like this is a kid that needs to be seen pretty soon. Um, because the other piece of it is that in a 10 month old, 
if you're able to see a knee effusion, it makes me wonder how many other pudgy little joints might be affected without you actually being able to, like, with, with no one knowing, um, going flying under the radar. So um, I think that's key. And I would also just mention that the read on the x-ray kind of, you know, that's why I like to make sure that radiologists that know what I'm looking for and I trust are looking at films. Um, and then in terms of what you can see on x-ray, you actually can see effusion, not all the time, but much of the time, um, if it's a big effusion on x-ray. So um, that is one thing that is helpful. It's always helpful to know when you're looking at an imaging study, what you are looking for and what you can see versus what you can't see. Absolutely. I feel like as rheumatologists, we often get consults um, in the outpatient setting that are like, well, the x-ray was normal, so it, you know, it can't be arthritis. Right, right. Right. Yeah. So just because you have a normal x-ray doesn't mean that you necessarily have a normal joint. So it's a really good thing to keep in mind. Same with normal labs. Doesn't necessarily yes. mean you don't have arthritis. Absolutely. All right, Dr. Ambukin, can you tell us a little bit more about this patient? What yes. happened when they got to rheumatology? So when he got to rheumatology, we did one of the most important things that the rheumatologist does, a physical examination. And our physical examination was notable for uh, right knee fusion, as well as right knee contracture and a right wrist swelling. It was a difficult examination because he was a 10 month old. And so that inherently makes it difficult, but he was also very terrified of us. Um, and so this is what we were able to say was present for sure. And because of our physical exam findings, um, we did order x-ray of the knees, pelvis, and wrists, and then ultrasound of the right knee and hips. And we instructed the family to start scheduled NSAIDs. Fantastic. So you bring up a really good point about um, exams being difficult in different age groups. Um, and I would agree that, you know, two and a half and under um, and really even up to about four can sometimes really, really be difficult. Um, and so I've found that when I'm trying to examine a patient and I can sense the fear, right, the, the white coat, the, all of the garb is terrifying this, this young child, um, I try really hard to start with the feet, right? So I play with their toes and kind of work my way up. Um, but Dr. Janel, do you have any other tips for, for providers or um, learners who are trying to figure out if their patients have arthritis? So I think you bring up a great point, and I think important. The reason this is so important is because one of the sort of criteria on exam for defining arthritis is pain on motion or tenderness. And if you have a screaming child, it's very hard. Like if they're screaming to start with, <laughs> it's not like, oh, they started screaming when I bent their wrist. That's helpful. They were screaming, they screamed louder, not as helpful. So um, in terms of the exam, usually actually what I like to do is in this age group specifically, I tend to walk in without, and this is Gen P stuff too, just walk in without my white coat. And I usually do wear my white coat in clinic, so I make sure to take it off. Um, and what I've taken to doing lately um, is I have the, I use like the giant pieces of paper from the exam table and I put it on the floor and I have a bunch of stamps <laughs> and markers and I just put them on the floor and sometimes I just start playing with them. 
And then I, while I'm talking to the mom, sometimes I just watch what the kid does because you can get a certain amount of information from that, right? Like he's 10 months, so he's a little little, but like even in like a two-year-old, for example, that I was seeing recently, she had some, you know, finger swelling. That's what she was seeing me for. And, but I noticed when she was, you know, kneeling on the floor, she was all the way flexed on one side, but she was keeping the other side not completely flexed while she was stamping. And she was willing to pick up the stamp with all her fingers. So like all of those kind of observations you can do before they start crying are really important. Mm. And then you can do things, you know, that you don't think are, these are going to sound very silly. Um, but like, you know, the high fives to like look at their wrist extension, um, pound to look how well they can make a fist um, and the little ones, because even really little kids can do that these days. And then when I do the really little babies, assuming that I've played with them for a little while and made them comfortable while I was taking the history. Um, the only problem there, by the way, is that I write nothing down and then I have to count on my memory, but that's another story. Um, then I um, make very silly noises when I move their joints. So like very small, tiny thing, but I think it's really helpful. Like, like when you're doing it, and going through all of them and then I act very surprised. Like, I didn't know your knee made that noise. Like, did you know that? Um, and trying to do things like that just to make it more, gamify it basically. Um, I do that too. I'm really happy to hear that I'm not the only one and little kids love it. So it actually buys you a lot um, with sound effects. You can get a long way. Yes. Um, fantastic. That um, is all very sage advice. Um, when you're trying to get an exam on a difficult patient. Um, so Dr. Ambukin, um, you talked about imaging. Um, so do we have any results of the imaging? We do have. So mom um, took the patient to get the image imaging done and we have ultrasound results and we have x-ray results. So here you see an image of the um, right knee ultrasound of this patient. And it was read as a small to moderate sized right knee joint effusion with suggestion of diffuse synovial hypertrophy and interval amount of free fluid within the knee joint capsule. There is associated periarticular hyperemia and hyperemia of the epiphysis compatible with findings of synovitis. Um, in terms of his x-ray of the wrist, it was read as mild asymmetry in the ossification of the carpal bones from right to left. Okay, Dr. Jano. How would you like to interpret that? I think, so first of all, this isn't your classic, um, when I think about knee ultrasounds um, of, you know, musculoskeletal ultrasound, I usually think more classically of my um, anterior long view, um, like right over the quadriceps tendon. And this looks like it's a lot more lateral, but you can see the out pouching um, right above um the bone, do you see? So it's not black, so it's not fluid. It's not anechoic, it's um, hypochoic. And um, that kind of mishmash in it with like the slightly brighter areas looks like synovial hypertrophy. And so what are we talking about with synovial hypertrophy? So that means inflamed synovium, which is the joint lining. And that's like the perpetrator in synovitis. Um, or arthritis and in JIA, juvenile arthritis. Um, so fluid by itself um, is not great, 
but the hypertrophy and then the hyperemia um, is suspicious for further inflammation. So hyperemia just means more blood flow to that area. That's a very fancy term for saying that. Um, and anytime something is inflamed, I basically picture like little ambulances, like going to the area and trying to like throw white blood cells on the area and everything else to sort of, you know, work itself up into a tizzy. And anytime you're trying to bring more things to an area, the only thing that can bring things to that area or the main thing is blood. So if you want to get more stuff there, you have to put more blood there. If you put more blood there, you get hyperemia. Make sense? Inflammation, hyperemia, good. Yes. Um, and so now I will always envision little teeny ambulances driving towards arthritis. There you go. It's <laughs> a great um, mental Driving towards jello. Yeah. Um, no. <laughs> um, so, and then I do want to not slide by this x-ray of the wrist because I think this is a very, very important point. Um, so we had said that we thought there was some inflammation in one of the wrists. So rheumatologists are known for being annoying and getting bilateral images, x-rays of everything. And this is one of those big reasons because we like to compare. Granted, it's not always helpful if you have symmetric arthritis, but having said that, in this case, we know that ossification takes place um, over time, right? And so in a 10-month-old in the wrist, it's basically, it's practically a black hole um, because it's mostly cartilage and cartilage is mostly black on x-ray. Um, but based on how quickly it's turning into bone, you'll see specks of bone in the middle of the black. I'm trying to really make this as basic as I can. Um, and if you have one side that has a lot of inflammation, well, I just told you that if you have a lot of inflammation, you have a lot of blood going to that area. Have a lot of blood going to that area, you had a lot of growth factors and things going to that area. So it can actually give you more maturation or more rapid advanced maturation of the bones of the carpus on one on the affected side. Um, so I think that's like one of those pearls not to forget about um, that you can sometimes see on plain films. Um, it's not fluid. It's not you're not seeing the arthritis. What you're seeing is the effect or the impact of the arthritis. Okay. So previously, Dr. Mbunga mentioned that the patient was started on NSAIDs um, while we were you know, waiting to get imaging back and, and whatnot. So that being said, knowing what the imaging has shown, um, how does that change management? So what happened next with this patient? So we had ample evidence at this point that there was um, right knee uh, synovitis. So right knee joint injection was performed under anesthesia three weeks later. After the joint injection was done uh, with intraarticular steroids, he followed up in the office again three weeks after that. And by history from mom, he was now crawling and walking better than before. There was still no clear morning stiffness noted and no other pain or swelling that mom could find. On physical examination in the office, however, um, persistent right knee and right wrist swelling are still noted. So now what Now what do we do? Yeah, that's a good question um, because when I offer joint injections to patients, um, I tell them that it's it's not necessarily a long-term fix. So um, what did happen? started on systemic patient? therapy with oral methotrexate and folic acid. 
Um, we also had recommended to continue the scheduled NSAIDs along with the methotrexate, and we also referred him to ophthalmology. His methotrexate was delayed by one month, so the patient could receive his one-year vaccines. And then at follow-up two months after the methotrexate was started, he was noted to have a worsening contracture of that right knee, continued swelling of the right wrist, and now swelling of the left foot as well. And mom says that now he's not walking at all. Well, now we have a lot to unpack in this slide. So first things first, um, can we talk about why the patient got an ophthalmology referral? Absolutely. So juvenile idiopathic arthritis, um, which one of my mentors used to say is called idiopathic because it means your doctor's an idiot and it's pathetic for the patient, but that's not actually true, um, um, is associated um, very strongly with uveitis. Uveitis is inflammation of the uveal tract, um, and it is especially in what's called oligoarthritis, um, which is where there are four or fewer joints involved without a history of psoriasis, a negative rheumatoid factor, and some other tidbits that we can talk about a little bit more later. Um, these kids um, are at risk for developing, most at risk for developing what's called anterior uveitis, um, involvement of the anterior chamber of the eye. The reason that it's so important for them to go to ophthalmology is because they may not have any symptoms. So you would think, oh, uveitis, inflammation in your eye, of course you're going to have blurry vision, you're going to have redness, you're going to have, nope, nope, can be totally silent. So sometimes we actually say that it's a good thing when they get arthritis first because it's easier to find and then they get ophthalmology screenings. And if uveitis is caught early, um, it can be treated and hopefully we can prevent any long-term sequelae. However, by the time we can see anything without a slit lamp exam, like if I can see your uveitis on exam, then we've missed the boat a little bit. So what we see on exam, sometimes as you can see what's called synechiae or other findings, um, synechiae specifically are irregularities in the pupil. Um, and you can sometimes just see that with your ophthalmoscope. But those are signs that the damage has been going on for so long that the little fibers that um, muscles that contract and dilate the pupil have gotten tacked down by the gluey inflammation. And so it can't do that anymore. Um, and so by that point, we're already in bad shape. We've already like glued something down. We want to get rid of it before the glue has dried. <laughs> And certain groups are more at risk for this. The highest risk group for uveitis are the little, little ones under two, um, specifically the ones who are anti-nuclear antibody positive on immunofluorescence. Awesome advice. So basically what I'm hearing is anytime a general pediatrician is worried that their patient may have arthritis, then it's probably okay to go ahead and put that referral in for ophthalmology as well, just to make sure that in case this silent problem is happening, it doesn't, um, it doesn't get missed for any longer. True. So, Although I would say that like, if you, I mean, you can get your line test and like make sure it's a chronic issue a little bit. You don't have to do it like the first day they're complaining of a swollen knee. Perfect. Okay. Um, and so then let me also ask you this. So we have escalated therapy, right? So we went from NSAIDs, we started, or we did um, intra-articular steroid injections, and then we started methotrexate. 
but now symptoms are worse. So what do you, what do we make of that? What do we have to do now? Um, well, technically methotrexate, methotrexate is a DMARG, just to back up two steps, um, meaning a disease modifying anti-rheumatic drug. And it's like been used for a million years. People feel super comfortable with it. The doses that we give in rheumatology are much lower than the doses that are given for cancer treatment. Um, it's given typically once a week. It can be given orally or by sub-Q injection. And the most common side effects are nausea, um, vomiting, fatigue, um, occasional mouth sores. We screen every three months when they're on that for um, liver problems because that is a more common um, concern with this. Um, and we can see bumps in the LFTs as an early sign. Um, and then the folic acid, just in case anyone was wondering, is given, you either give folic acid every day except for the day that they get the methotrexate, which is once weekly, or you can give folinic acid um, or lupivorin the day after the methotrexate. And that helps with some of those side effects. Um, so that's that's something, and it's a vitamin. So that's, that's a nice thing to be able to give. Um, but at this point, um, we're on scheduled NSAIDs, which should be helping to decrease some inflammation and the methotrexate we're not getting anywhere. And technically methotrexate doesn't reach its max effect until three months, which is a really stinky part of the medication. <laughs> um, nobody wants to wait three months to feel better. So you do other things also. Um, but at this point we need to escalate. And, um, you know, there's definitely literature now looking at whether you start with like full um, all the medications combination treatment with methotrexate and what's called the biologic, um, which is um, typically an injectable medication. Um, most of them are injectable medications that um, are the, the most frequently used class is the anti-TNF medications or anti-tumor anti necrosis factor medications. Um, and at this point, um, this kid definitely, I think, needs a biologic, especially because he's accruing more joints. And he's accruing joints that like aren't so great. Like midfoot, there are a lot of little little joints. If you, if you take out your anatomy notebook and look at the bones in the foot, there are a lot of little joints in there. And the wrist also is a poor prognostic joint. Like that's not a good one to have. Okay. And the reason we're doing all of this is to prevent long-term damage and disability. So we need to treat while the inflammation's there to prevent damage down the road. There, There is a method to the madness for sure, and early aggressive treatment is crucial for some patients, absolutely. Um, so I agree that if this person walks back into your clinic looking worse or doesn't walk back into your clinic because they look <laughs> worse, that is definitely a problem. Um, so Dr. Ambukin, it seems like we've been talking forever, um, and so we should have all this other information about the patient. But in real time, all this stuff takes a while to come back, right? So can you give us an update on, you know, labs and what else has been happening um, in the interim? Yes. So because he's not showing the improvement that we expect and because he's on methotrexate, we do draw some more labs. Um, like Dr. Jano had just mentioned, the ANA is really important to check by immunofluorescence because of the increased risk of uveitis uh, with a positive ANA, and his was thankfully negative. We repeated his CBC, his uh, white count had jumped up a smidge, 
with a white count of 14.6. He was still anemic with an H and H of 10.1 over 33.9, and he did have this thrombocytosis with platelets of 762. Uh, MCV was low at 65. His CMP was within normal limits. His CRP was elevated at 8.7, and his ESR was unfortunately canceled because of an insufficient quantity of blood. His rheumatoid factor was less than 14, so within normal limits, and his LDH was within normal limits as well. In terms of management at this point, because he doesn't seem to be showing any improvement, we started him on a short course of prednisolone, and we also plan to start the TNF inhibitor etanercept. And we scheduled joint injections of the left ankle and foot, the bilateral knees, and the right wrist. We also switched his oral methotrexate to sub-Q methotrexate, hoping that altogether these would um, have better benefit for the patient. Okay, so a lot happened in a really short amount of time. I want to kind of go back to the labs um, for just one second. Dr. Jano, what labs do you need to make the diagnosis of arthritis? I know, loaded question. The only reason, I more need labs to rule things out than right. to make the diagnosis. So that's really what it is. Um, at some point in our careers, most of us will have a patient that we would swear was arthritis and then turns out to have some sort of malignancy, and that's really scary. This child, I'm sort of losing track of how many joints they have, but um, it seems to, they seem to be accruing more joints, so I'm less worried um, about malignancy in this case, and I would not be totally shocked if this kid had elevated inflammatory markers. Um, the units aren't there in terms of um, the CRP, but I, I assume that, I don't know whether that's 8.7 where the normal is greater than 5 or greater than 0.5, depending on whether it's milligrams per deciliter or milligrams per liter. It looks like this kid has, you know, um, a low MCV, so I'm going to try to optimize there also. But this kid looks like he has a chronic disease. He's got some inflammation. The platelets are probably elevated as an acute phase reactant. I'm happy he doesn't have an ANA in that um, he's less likely to develop uveitis. So, hey, the rheumatoid factor is not, I wasn't really expecting it to be positive. Um, he's the wrong demographic. I expect that um, in older kids with polyarthritis, more girls boys and um i think that ldh is like i think it's okay it might be at the upper limit of normal but it's okay um but i do you know like a normal ldh and uric acid when i can get them just to reassure me that there's no malignancy so what I'm hearing is really to make a diagnosis of juvenile idiopathic arthritis, you don't you don't really need labs to make that diagnosis. You need the labs to do the workup and evaluate for other diagnoses. Correct. Okay. And so what would be your advice to a general pediatrician or a generalist or anybody in general that sees children um, if they're thinking about ordering labs? You know, what would you tell them if somebody felt super compelled to order an ANA or a rheumatoid factor? I would say that there's nothing there to hang your hat on, for sure. And I always try to remind people that unless you're looking, unless you think it's lupus, the ANA in arthritis is really only useful in, if, if it's just arthritis. Like if you don't think there's some other autoimmune disease, systemic autoimmune disease like lupus or mixed connective tissue disease or something else, it's only useful for determining uveitis risk. Um, people get really excited about it, but it's not that helpful. The rheumatoid factor is positive most of the time, and you really are just doing these things to rule out other stuff. Awesome. Okay. 
Thank you. Um, and then Dr. Ambukin. So we just did a whole bunch of stuff for this patient. So what happened next? Did we get any better? So this plan was discussed with mom and she did agree to start the Tannercept. She wanted to hold off on the joint injections because it was a number of joints that were going to be injected. And um, she also wished to continue the oral methotrexate for now, just to see if the Tannercept by itself, but the oral methotrexate would confer benefit first. So Etanercept was started, and three months after starting the Etanercept, we saw him again. At this point, mom told us that he's not really tolerating the oral methotrexate. He's gagging and spitting it out, but he is moving more, she feels. He's crawling faster, he's standing, and he is bearing weight on both feet. He seems to be using both hands, all fingers well, but again, on physical examination, we see swelling of his bilateral knees with this right knee contracture that's been noted before, swelling of the right wrist and persistent swelling of the left ankle. So now what should we do? Well, what did you do? So um, we got some repeat labs again and repeat labs were notable for an improvement in his anemia. His CMP was with the normal limits. His CRP, um, where the upper limit of normal is five, dropped from eight to 0.8. So that was good. And his ESR was within normal limits again. So labs are showing a little bit improvement, but um, because of his physical examination findings, joint injections of the bilateral knees, right wrist and left ankle were scheduled and done. After the joint injections at follow-up one week later, he was extremely playful. He was walking, squatting, sitting on, on his knees, using both hands, although he was noted to keep his right wrist fairly still. Um, he still had about 10 degrees of limitation of knee extension bilaterally, and his left midfoot still appeared to be slightly puffy. His plan at that point was to continue on the atenorcept and start um, subcutaneous methotrexate as well as the addition of physical therapy. So Dr. Jano, um, I know that we've discussed the age of this patient. He is pretty young, under one. Um, but does the rest of this clinical path surprise you at all? Well, one thing that I'm trying to immensely wrap my head around is the time course of all of this. Um, Dr. Ambergen, do you know how far out from diagnosis we are now? <laughs> like how many months? Probably about uh, four months out of outside of the diagnosis. I think we're still seeing, you know, improvement and we're still progressing in the right direction. So I think that is um, a good thing. I think in this age group, the exam is so challenging sometimes. One thing we didn't talk about before that I just wanted to make sure we mention is thinking about other things you can look for, like looking at, um, in this case, um, you mentioned that there were 10 degrees of limitation of the knee extension. So like measuring progress by degrees. Um, we actually, for those of you who are rheumatologists, have a little protractor thingy called a goniometer that we can use um, to measure that. And then also looking for muscle atrophy of the affected side. And that's another thing that I think about when I think about chronicity, um, which we didn't get into earlier, but I just wanted to mention. Um, in this case, um, it sounds like the family may have had some resistance to some of the medications, and I get that because I think that, you know, when you talk about the TNF medications, one of the big things is that there's a black box warning on all, all anti-TNFs that says that they may increase your risk of developing certain malignancies. And if you're a parent, especially a parent of a 10-month-old, and this doctor is telling you that this is 
you know, probably chronic and you don't know, you know, when it's going to end. And by the way, PS, we don't know when we should really stop medications either because the data is not super clear cut in that area. That's scary. So we give a lot of guidance about the research that we do have and the fact that that's not necessarily accurate in our patient population. Um, but I think, and that we're going to monitor their blood counts to make sure they're not developing, you know, any signs of blood cancers or, and then we're looking for skin cancers and things like that, because um, in the older population, sometimes that's what these black box warnings were initially um, based on. But having said all of that, this kid needs more treatment because ultimately this kid is 10 months. And if he wants to be a world famous violinist, when he grows up, I want him to, or a marathon runner, I want him to be able to use all of his joints. And if I don't stop the inflammation before they've burned through it, like eventually the inflammation might burn out, but I need to stop it when it's active so that I can prevent burning through it. I'm not really sure if that answers your actual initial question. Um, I think so. And then it also, you preemptively answered my follow-up question is, uh, you know, Um, what are the goals of treatment? And that was basically to prevent morbidity and, you know, let normal, healthy or previously healthy 10-month-olds grow up to be normal, healthy adults one day. And that's my my analogy. It's my other favorite one other than my Jell-O analogy is the house on fire. When you have arthritis, it's like a house on fire. And if we accept your joint is the house and the fire is the inflammation and the arthritis. And if you put put out the fire, you can prevent damage to the house. But if you let it keep burning, because some kids don't have pain. So their parents are like, why do I have to treat this? Like 20% of kids or some ridiculous number don't perceive arthritis as painful. And so the parents, rightly so, are like, why are you giving me this medicine that they're telling me might cause cancer for my child to treat something that's not really bothering them? And the answer is that if your house burns down, you don't have a house anymore and we can't, you know, we can rebuild it by giving you a joint replacement. Um, but we need to stop it before the house burns down. By the time we have the damage, it's too late. Same thing with the eyes, the uveitis, it's too late by that point. So why we're doing all of this. Yeah. To preserve the future. Super important. And so Dr. Ambukin, can you, can you tell us how the patient is doing now? Yes. So the patient was continued on Etanercept, who has continued on subcutaneous methotrexate, and he started doing physical therapy. And when we saw him again, about five months later, the patient was at that point in clinical remission, and he was doing formal physical therapy as well as consistent uh, home exercise plan. So this is about nine to 10 months after his initial diagnosis, and he finally seemed to be responding very well. Who doesn't love a happy ending? Thanks everyone for coming to the inaugural Room to Play podcast and remember to listen or you'll be less smart. Thank you for joining us today. We hope to have you back for our next episode. Make sure you follow us on Instagram at Room to Play. That's R-H-E-U-M, the number two, play, and share us with your friends.